The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. (laughs) You are listening to the Burroughs of Berea. Well, welcome back to the Burroughs of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and to my left is Big Daddy Carter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and straight out of Compton, Ralph Hicks. Represent. He's still not used he is, to it. He's not. He'll get, no. Behind the glass, Rocketman Andy Bishop. <laughs> to my right, Sarita the Edge Edgerton. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Sarita. <laughs> His voice is a little off today, folks. da 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 Jerry, the Annihilator <laughs> Lewis. Hello. I don't even know what song that was. I don't even think it was, it was a song. Uh, Cashmere. Was, <laughs> it was, Cashmere, yeah. Oh, yeah. it was Cashmere, Cashmere. by yeah. Led well, Zeppelin. Remember the uh, Godzilla movie with Matthew Broderick? Yes. That song was in it. The uh, op- one of the uh, opening songs for that. It's been in that a riff. lot of movies. Oh, yeah. That riff? Yes. Not rift. Rift. Riff. Riff. Yeah. Well... We are back in the studio. Uh, Billy Kimsey will not be here today, but he will be here later for the next week. And so we have a very special guest. This is someone that I have been talking to off and on for months, actually. And uh, he is the author of the book, On Time. And uh, I believe that it was edited and, uh, and co-authored, possibly. I don't know. I'll ask him by Karen Rogers, <laughs> our friend Karen Rogers. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, I actually spoke with her today. She's quite a good uh, editor. She is very good. She edits a lot of books. She will chop your stuff right down. She will tell you that it's garbage. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because she keeps asking me when I'm going to write a book. Well, and then you should, and then send her the information. She's excellent. Yeah, she's an excellent editor, and and she's a wonderful friend. Five times. Yes, she was the leading female jockey. Remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. She was awesome, lady. Very much so. So let's get him started here, Mister John Paul Miles. Welcome to the. Burroughs of Berea. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad. We've been talking about this off and on. We were going to have you come down, then we couldn't come down, then we were going to have you drive down, then we couldn't drive down. It just never would work out. So we ended up doing this by Zoom. And uh, thank you for the reminder. It's been a crazy time around here. So um, I'm glad we finally got you on here. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so um, let's go ahead and kick this off. So, with every testimony, I ask our guests, to the best of your ability, can you tell me the earliest memory that you have of when you heard the name Jesus Christ? I remember the moment I got saved, and I was actually born into church, so I, I was going to church from one years old, so wow. uh, I don't have my earliest memory, per se, but um, I do recall when I was four years old, and... Uh, just felt a prompting by the Holy Spirit. That's the best way I can describe it today. And knew I needed to get saved and went and sat in my parents' lap and told them I wanted to give my life to the Lord. And they gave me the, told me what to say. And I gave my life to the Lord. And uh, it's continued to grow from there. Wow. So um, do you mind me asking what denomination that you were uh, born into? Yeah, I actually grew up in a non-denominational church. Um, 
actually, it's interesting. The church I grew up in was, it was previously Church of Christ, but, and this is a, off of Belmont with Don Finto mm-hmm. in Nashville. And uh, they had a bona fide miracle in their church. And the church denomination, Church of Christ, actually said, hey, if, if unless you denounce this miracle, we, you can't be part of Church of Christ. So the church decided to denounce Church of Christ, and they started their own branch, non-denominational. And, uh, and then out of that church, there was a lot of branches that came off in the Middle Tennessee area, and my family started going to one of those. Wow. So explain something to me. So because you're Church of Christ— then does that mean that all miracles have ceased? Is that well, why? That's, that's the background that they had going in. But what happened is uh, one of these couples at the church got healed. And this was before my time. That, so I'm recalling this secondhand. But essentially someone in the church was healed miraculously. And um, the church realized that they couldn't keep teaching that miracles don't happen today. Mm-hmm. So they dropped the Church of Christ denomination name and started a non-denominational church. And we were growing into this church and there was a lot of people growing up in this church where everyone was excited to be learning about miracles and grace and that God still speaks and acts today. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of people kind of, kind of retraining what they had been taught, um, retraining themselves. So that's really interesting because for me, I mean, that's really where it's at. You know, I know in my church, which is a Southern Baptist church, that we had a lady that, you know, had cancer and um, she went, uh, they had prayer. Um, they even went so far as anointing a cloth because she couldn't come to the church. They wanted to send something to her for to hold and, you know, as a just sort of in that biblical way, but um, we all just, you know, trusted that God would hear our prayer and we and they sent it on to her. And when she went to go have her test, all of the cancer was gone and it was a shock and even the doctors were in disagreement. And that happens quite a bit. We hear those stories, but this one in particular hit us really hard because she'd been battling it for a while. And so to see that all wow. of the cancer was gone and... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Cherry. Wasn't it like stage four pancreatic? Like it was bad. Yeah, I was going to say that it was pancreatic cancer, which is usually um, one ninety-eight percent. You don't normally mortality rate. It's yeah. one of the one of the real bad ones. Right? It yeah. is, yeah. and it, that's what killed like Patrick Swayze. I mean, as soon as he got, it, he was dead. You know, it's like it's whoever gets it usually doesn't make it. And so for this woman, it was amazing because. Uh-huh. She, we did, and so, but see, we believe that miracles still happen in the Baptist church, but still the fact that it did and the way that it happened, I think if I had been in a church like that with Church of Christ, the fact that that even came up and they're like, listen, we see that this has happened and we can't deny it. So we're going to have to change that. That's remarkable that believers as a collective group did that. I think that's amazing. Yeah, that doesn't normally happen. Uh, you can, uh, that was under the leadership of Don Fento in Nashville. So. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember anything about, uh, I guess, the, the membership? Did it have a big split? Did it everybody kind of hang together? I, I believe the only split was with the denomination and the rest of the church. That's, wow. That's even more impressive. Yeah, than wow, that is, that's a miracle in itself. Yeah. Especially Absolutely. in this day and age. And so yeah. that's the church that you grew up in is what you're saying. Yeah. One of the branches came out to the uh, Grassland Franklin area and they called that church Abounding Grace. And that's where I grew up. Awesome. Wow. 
So, so you're the age of four. You're on your parents' lap. You you want the Lord to come into your life and to save you, and He does. And so, take us from there. Tell us your journey. Like so, from the age of four, growing up until now. Um, share. You know, tell us tell us how you got where you are today. Yeah. Well, first of all, I was really privileged and excited to be part of this church, Abounding Grace. Um, they were really passionate about teaching God's grace and excited to study the scriptures afresh and uh, look at new perspectives and realize that God's still active today. And they used to say, there's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. And they would say that even kids could hear God's voice and and heal people and stuff like that. And so uh, from third grade, we had people teaching us how they had taught, heard the Lord's voice. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but... Um, Oh, I don't but put any. I, I don't put any I was, rules on God, man. <laughs> I was I was in second grade when I heard my calling. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, well, we you just know, had when, a a youth beach beach camp, and it's funny that you said there's no junior Holy Spirit because the pastor got up and spoke to these kids, and he said, "Listen, in Christianity, there's no JV, there's no middle school C team." It's varsity. Everybody's playing varsity. Everybody's on the starting line. Nobody's sitting the bench. There are no cheerleaders. Everybody's participating in this Christian life. So it kind of reminds he was emphasizing that with our young people, you know, as young as, as 13 and 14 and three of them, which were my children. So to hear you say mm-hmm. that, I, I'm, I'm fully behind that. Yeah, well, one thing that we've learned on this podcast is as soon as we try to put God in a box, He no longer fits. Like we, it never happens. No matter what we do, everything changes. So uh, for you to say that, um, we're all in agreement. God can do whatever He wants to with whomever He wants to whenever He wants to. That's how we look at it. Amen. Let's see if you still held that uh, true when we talk about Judas later on tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. We're not going to talk about Judas while we're talking to John Paul Miles, though. So anyway, take us from there. So you you were enjoying this. They were studying afresh. And obviously, uh, the things that Church of Christ denomination had held, they're actually challenging that now. They're seeing other things. So uh, how does that affect you? Like you're growing up. I imagine you came up in your teen years there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, uh, around the age of 10, one of the members of our church passed away um, and they had a funeral for her. And at the funeral, they read from this book about a near-death experience of someone who experienced what heaven was like and then was resuscitated and was able to live to tell about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, when I heard their story, it was so encouraging. I said to myself, I want to know the kind of God who would make a place so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And that's when my faith really started to mean something to me. Um, and I was baptized and the church was really encouraging. They taught a lot of good messages. Um, they continued to grow in grace. And actually when I was around 13 years old, we had a speaker come to our church named John Sheesby. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he I was haven't. a very bold. Okay. I believe he's from Texas. He's got a website, liberated living. Uh, .org or .com, I'm not sure which, but um, he came and spoke at our church and his message was so radical (laughs) about grace that the church was actually divided over it. And some people thought, wow, is grace really this good and we've just been missing it? And the other half of the church thought, we've gone too far now. And so there was a bit of a split in the church and the pastor at the time took uh, a sabbatical to decide what he thought about it. 
So he took a break from teaching and another temporary teacher stepped in. And he was one of the teachers that I, I suppose was not as in favor of the grace message that John Sheesby preached. Um, he wasn't really invited back to the church again, John Sheesby. And unfortunately, they, they were worried that, that his teaching would lead to negative, sinful behavior. So they actually started trying to counter his message of grace. And for several years, it felt like a lot of the teachings became very legalistic and kind of uh, religious. Can and you explain that logic to me? Like, how do they think, do you know what their logic was? Like, how they thought those teachings of grace would lead to sinful living? Can you, I mean, even if you don't believe it, I assume you don't. But that's just well, like, I, that's interesting to me. I'm not sure if John Sheesby explained it well or not. Keep in mind, this was like 20 years ago for me. So, uh-huh. oh, yeah, my, yeah. Well, I didn't realize. But, but um, one of the things that happened was, I, I think some of the youth didn't quite understand the message and were thinking, oh, I can live however I want. I should do whatever I want to do. And I, I think they they were discrediting this message by their behavior. And, and I think some of the elders of the church were worried about that and decided to push back on that. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But you know how it is. They were using an excuse for their behavior. They were not altering their behavior. So. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that it would, you know— uh, obviously, I don't know Sheesby's teaching, but uh, obviously, you know, teaching, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Um, so if I, you know, if I know that, do I keep on sinning? And then Paul says, God forbid. So there's obviously an understanding of how far God's grace will go, but there's also a reaction that must come from the believer in the way that they live and characterize their life. So I can see both sides where you can you can go off the rails and have way so much grace that you forget the part where you shouldn't keep on sinning. And then you have the other side where they really want to protect that. And so they create this, um, like you said, this legalistic approach so that we can all sort of look at each other and know that we're toeing the line, you know? And we do that in churches. I mean, it, we, we hold each other accountable. Um, but at the same time, sometimes we go overboard on that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially Cherry. <laughs> <laughs> do you mind do you mind one more like minor distraction distraction? When okay, so where uh sin abounds, grace abounds as well. Yeah. I think I have a different interpretation of that phrase. Of course I don't have the context for it than you do. What is your like nutshell interpretation of that phrase? Can I give you the modern day interpretation of that? That's fine. I, I, I mean, do you mind? Talk I don't mind, and then we'll let yeah, and John can answer too. So go um, ahead. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> I think that's the what we would use modern day vernacular. That's the incorrect interpretation. <laughs> I see. I'm more graceful than I even realized. I think that's what he thinks. He said that the elders thought was oh. going to happen. Oh no, but I just mean like kind of divorced from that specifically. Oh, gotcha. Like, Sorry. how is that verse generally interpreted? Because of Rick's talking about that verse, it kind of like I feel like I would read that much different. So, so you have to take it within the context of the entire letter, which is Paul is writing to. I believe this is wasn't it in Romans where he says that, and he, but mm-hmm. Paul was Paul was, you know the apostle that went to the Gentiles, which were not the normal people of God. The children of Israel had been all this time. Now, Gentiles could come in, 
but they had to adopt Judaism, what we would call Judaism, or what they would call, you know, their religious law, the, the law of Moses, and follow accordingly. Well, this had been done away with through Christ's death, and so now what you have is the invite, the invitation to the nations to come in to the new spiritual temple, the temple that Christ has built. And they may not have the same culture. They may not have any, like they might be eating shrimp and, and Jews don't eat shrimp. And so to one, it might seem as a sin to another, but what he's saying is that God's grace abounded, you know, to cover even the Gentile nations to bring them in. And so they're not going to have to follow those old ritual laws that they had before. But once they understand what Christ's laws were to love your enemy, right? Or to, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, to give them your left or whatever the things that Christ had said. Now that's where we have some action, Okay, and so yeah, for those okay. that don't yeah. know the action, but have become believers and they're not following that, God's grace is abounding. It's there for them. It's bringing them to him. However, when you come to the knowledge of whatever it might be, once you've learned it, then you're going to be held accountable for that knowledge. You that's, see what I mean? That's that's close to how I would interpret it then. Yeah. That's close to how is I would Is that how you would see it, John Paul? Yeah, I, I believe what you're saying is true. And that verse in particular, I believe, is in Romans 5. Mm-hmm. I think um, you're right. I believe the context of that is when the law was given and how before the law there was no transgression. But then when the law was given, transgression started. But where the transgressions increased, grace increased all the more mm-hmm. in the sense that um, in the sense that actually Paul goes on to explain in Romans 6 and 7 that where the law increased, sin increased as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very interesting because it seems like when we receive the law, we realize that we've fallen short. Mm-hmm. We, we read it and we're like, oh crap, I did that. Yeah, that sounds like a, <laughs> sounds semantical to me. Yeah, and it's it like, is. If I mean, they're like, eating popcorn is illegal, all of a sudden I'd be... And so your sin about it, your sin grew because the law told you that it was bad. Now, now that's grown in your life. Well, yeah, the line moved. Yes, but God is saying, okay, we understand that, but now you know. I would think that where sin is grace abounds because if you have a bunch of people that are living poor and sinful lives and you enter into their lives, your opportunity to do things— uh, to do graceful things is just greater than if you're around a bunch of people that maybe don't need that much right. help. No, that's yeah. 100% accurate. Okay. I would agree with that, okay. wouldn't you? So let's get back to where you were. So uh, you're at this place. You said you, I think you were at the age of 13. Is that correct? Yes, it was around my 13, 14th year. Um, and, uh, and so the church actually, and, and, I respect these leaders. I have nothing against these leaders, nothing against this church. And probably today they're back to teaching grace. I haven't been there for a while. Um, so I don't want to speak anything negative about this church. They, I was really grateful that I grew up in, in this place. Um, but at, at the time it seemed like, and this is from my kind of limited memory here, they were teaching legalistic messages and, and it is probably a combination of that and how I was interpreting the Bible myself. But I ended up in a years long depression and just feeling like God was out to get me. Like uh, God, I, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but looking back on that, I might've said, I felt like God didn't love me. Hmm. And like uh, he was, he was going to send bad karma my way or, uh, or judgment or condemnation or discipline. And so 
uh, I was, I would say, kind of paranoid of God in a sense. And I still loved him, but I didn't feel close to him and I struggled feeling connected to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you probably heard, def- you probably heard that uh, God chastises those that he loves, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, we know that's biblical, but sometimes it's used in the improper context of your life. And you're like, well, then he must really love me. <laughs> He's getting me chastising my tail all over town. I need to tell my kids they know they should know that, that I'd love them. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Yeah, 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 of yeah. course. <laughs> Give me the belt then, Dad. Right. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. But I, I started giving up my hobbies and friendships and things I enjoyed in life to prove to myself I love God more than those things. Mm. And the result was I was kind of a person who would just lay on the bed all day, not having anything to do, just trying to be perfect for God. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like what it takes, right? You just lay still, don't move, don't open your eyes, don't listen. Yeah, but you know, that's, there's a story about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you bury it, you haven't done anything with it. Right. There you go. There's that side of it. Thanks for the chastisement, Ralph. <laughs> I love you, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my friends were concerned about me and they prayed for me on, on occasions and encouraged me to have a different way of thinking, but I was too stubborn at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, at one point when I was around 19 years old, uh, she saw the distress I was in and, uh, and the mis- how miserable I was. And she had been reading a book at their church um, and a Bible study by Joseph Prince called Unmerited Favor. Mm. And uh, she recommended that book to me. And I picked it up and started reading it. And I quickly closed the book and thought it was blasphemous. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, if you don't, a little background about Joseph Prince. He teaches the radical message of grace, a little bit like John Sheespeare. I'll say mm. that comes out of his mouth a lot. Mm. Yes. And uh, when he was teaching unmerited favor, I thought, you can expect good things from God. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to add something else. During this period of my life, I was trying as hard as I could to be a perfect Christian. I was doing everything right by the book as best as I could. And I was disappointed because I actually didn't like grace when, because, because when I, I saw myself as making myself miserable. So I'd be perfect for God. So he wouldn't punish me. And when I saw other people who weren't being perfect for God and were making mistakes and God wasn't punishing them, I felt upset. It was like, God, why, why, <laughs> why yes. do you smite them right now? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's interesting that you say that. It's a completely different take than than when I was young and trying to behave. I wasn't doing it because I was afraid of getting in trouble. It's because I wanted God to love me because I didn't feel like I was loved because I kept screwing up. Mm-hmm. So yours was mm-hmm. one of, you know, you're worried about getting in trouble and I was hoping to be loved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I can, and, and it makes sense that you would feel that way because we, we do that now. I mean, even David did. Why did the heathen rage? You know, why, why do the wicked prosper? You know, and the things that you feel, but... Um, whenever you live, I don't know about you, like whenever I tried to do that in my early life, when I would live that life, I almost got to the point of self-righteousness, but then I would chastise myself for being self-righteous. <laughs> right. But you would yes. want to, you know what I mean? So you would want to like, okay, I'm acting good. Oh, well, you really think you're good now, huh? Well, you're not, you know. That, now you're judging up. Yeah, it's a constant <laughs> thing. And so where's the Holy Spirit in all of this with you? Where's he at at that time? What's going on? Is that is that you or is that the Holy Spirit talking to you? Mm-hmm. See what I'm uh, saying? Well, Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, right after you feel like you've got your act together, then suddenly you find yourself judging others and yeah. back to square one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, for about a year after closing that book, I didn't hear the Lord's voice the way I normally did. Um, that is, I didn't hear him at all. Now, just a kind of disclaimer, whenever I say the Lord told me something, it's we always taught in church that uh, you want to be careful when you say the Lord said something because you might have misheard him. You know, it's I believe God speaks to us in our hearts, through senses, through feelings sometimes and thoughts in our head. And we can't always easily distinguish whether it's coming from ourselves or God. So I always tell people, hey, if I ever say God told me something, just know I might have heard him wrong. I have heard him wrong in the past. Sometimes I hear him right too, and I'm happy about that, but um, but take it with a grain of salt. So, so during this year, one of the things that's been really encouraging all throughout my life is the opportunity to hear God when he would speak to me on those occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was always very kind and sweet to me. He'd say very encouraging, simple phrases when I was in distress or having a hard time that would give me comfort or make me feel loved or peaceful. And uh, throughout this year, I struggled to hear him. And at the end of the year, I felt like the Lord started speaking to me really clearly. And he said that the reason I had not been hearing him was because um, I was worried about hearing him wrong. And I was so worried about hearing him wrong that I, in fact, stopped listening to him altogether. Hmm. And, and so he wanted me to know that it was okay for me to do my best to hear him and to make mistakes and just to be humble about it, but, but still try to listen. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And, and I felt like he said he would start teaching me. He would start speaking to me a lot more often. And in the months that followed, as I would go to sleep at night, the Lord would start to teach me about his grace. And, and it was offensive to me. He taught me that he's not out to get me. He's not out to punish me. Christ took all of our punishment, all of our chastisement, everything, and that we're actually blessed. And that even, even if we deserve bad, we can expect blessings from God because of what Christ did. Hmm. And he, I remember one day he said, if you think you've earned your righteousness, you'll also think you can lose it. Hmm. Wow. That's really good. If you think you've earned your righteousness, then you will always believe you could lose it. And that's true because everything is, it's unmerited. It's, that's what grace is. Wow. That's, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I like yeah. that. That's probably well, the best he, thing I've heard in a long time. Yeah. And I also liked what you said earlier, you know, about how, um, you know, you, the Lord's telling you all of these things that, you know, mentally, and I understand, I understand where you've been. I've been there because I've, you know, I've wrestled with myself. Like how much of this is me talking here? And am I, am I crazy? Like, is this just my brain playing with itself? But it would always lead me back to that. Like you were talking about, like with grace and with love and about not being able to deserve it, but yet I have it and I possess it. And all the way up to the point of being co-heir in a kingdom. And and like, I'm like, what? You know, it doesn't make any sense, but that uh, I've heard many pastors quote him, but Charles Spurgeon calls him the hound of heaven. The Holy Spirit just will not leave you alone in regard to that. Once you've put your trust in Jesus, that's what happens. And I've been there. I know exactly what you mean, but I loved what you just said. That was awesome. If you feel like you've earned my righteousness, then you will think you can lose it. That's brilliant. That came from God, so obviously that's really <laughs> doesn't get much better than that. So. I don't think I'm smart enough to come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how old were you at this point? 14, 15? 
19. How, how old? 19. 19. 19. So All right. Several years of depression. So. Wow. And, and when he started teaching me grace, the message was, was offensive. And I actually argued with him a lot. And I'm like, you got to show it to me in the scripture. <laughs> and, uh, and he started doing that. Um, actually, I want to mention one more event where I was struggling to forgive myself for one of my past sins and just feeling really ashamed and just feeling like I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. And I felt like the Lord said, I kind of saw a mental picture of God kind of taking Jesus and bending him over with a whip in his hand, like he was going to slash him. And he said, how many slashes does he need? He said, Jesus carries your sin. Mm. So he has to be punished for your sin. Now, obviously Jesus already took the punishment off our sin on the cross. This is a lesson to you, right? It's a lesson to me. And I was realizing that when I wasn't accepting his forgiveness and his love towards me, it was like I was saying Jesus hadn't suffered enough. Right. It's it's almost like when Paul talks about how those who've been saved, if they go back into that life of sin, that we cannot crucify Christ afresh, you know, or uh, once again, like that. Um, and I'm sure that's out of context, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. Like, it's almost like he's saying, we can't keep whipping Christ for your past sins. Yeah, um, in my post-abortion ministry, we we talk about that quite a bit because it's something that women really have a hard time forgiving themselves, and we actually don't use the term forgiving ourselves. We use the term releasing ourselves from condom or self condemnation. Mm. And um, but one of the things that we talk about is when you say I can't forgive myself, or you know God could never forgive. It's like you put Jesus back on the cross mm. every single. Time and he died once for all. I like that better. Releasing yourself from self condemnation. I don't so have much any better. power to forgive mm-hmm. myself of my sins. Yeah, I don't. But I can release myself from condemnation. The self con- the condemnation that there there is therefore now no condemnation. Right. Um, which I believe is Romans as well. It is. Uh, maybe twelve or eight. eight. I think. Uh, um, I remember. Anyway, all that to say is it's it's. That's a great way to to look at it. You know, I, I never thought about the lashing, but I did think about when I was struggling to get over my abortion and that sin. I kept putting mm-hmm. him back on the cross. I kept putting him back on yeah, the cross and a, nailing those things back in. I'm like, you're whipping a dead horse. I what mean, a vivid image, though, for him, like for the Lord to show him that vision. I know. So you're, like, you're I never there, thought about that. Uh, like, you're, you know, how many times do I need to whip my son just for you? I mean, my gosh. Anyway, thanks for sharing that yeah. with all. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, uh, I also recall him telling me, "Great forgiveness is not tolerance. One, two, three strikes, you're out. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness forgives forever. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was another big lesson because sometimes you think that forgiveness is like a loan and you receive it and then you've got a promise to do better. And if you don't do better, then he takes away that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are eternal consequences. That's what you feel. But what Christ did had the penultimate eternal consequence for those that trust him. Uh, I was okay with sinning as a kid and, 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 and justifying that as just when I realized in my latter years that it, uh, it was not only what you did, but what you thought. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm really dead. Yeah. We're, <laughs> yeah. Every errant thought that goes through your mind is like, oh, I'm toast. <laughs> so. So after this point, uh, John Paul, so uh, let's continue on. So take us from there to now. 
So after the Lord started teaching me grace, I realized that um, I realized that it was a lot of the same message Joseph Prince was teaching. So I would listen to the Lord the night before and the morning after I would open up one of Joseph Prince's sermons on YouTube. And it would be the same message that the Lord had taught me the night before. Hmm. And between Joseph Prince and, and God, and even I started listening to John Sheesby, I came out of that depression. I got my joy back. I got my peace back. I picked up my hobbies again. My mom said, John Paul, you, you look joyful again. My friend said, John Paul, you're your old self again. And I had a passion for life and ambition for life. I was excited. I absolutely loved God. And I found a love for God in my heart. And I loved it when he showed other people grace mm-hmm. because I realized like it feels so good to have God's grace. And I want other people to experience that too. Yeah, it's really powerful when you can walk into a prison uh, for somebody that's been in there for 20 years for something and be able to know, like, you're just so excited because you know what God can give them instead of the opposite, you know? Yes. Instead of punishment, you want them to receive that grace that you've been shown to the and let him go as far as he wants to go with eternal consequence. I love that. Well, um, I was really passionate about God's grace. And when I went to college, I went to Lee University and a, and a couple other colleges. But um, I would preach grace everywhere I went, every conversation I had, probably even when it was unwelcome. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, uh, <laughs> I, I get that a lot. <laughs> but I saw a lot of people really encouraged and even changed by the message of grace. And and it, it, it has continued to blow my mind and inspire me to this day. Um, I'm really passionate about it. I started a blog, started teaching and preaching about grace. Um, now, at the time, around 18 or 19, we were attending a Bible study at, uh, at, at part of a small group from Grace Center. Um, Abounding Grace later became Grace Center. And there was a, Scott, a elder named uh, Jared Black, and he was a scholar and he began teaching about revelation and he began teaching that we should take the time statements seriously in revelation. And he, he taught it from more of a symbolic view mm-hmm. that, that, you know, these are events that symbolize good versus evil. But he also talked about some of the historical contexts of the book, like the white robes and the stones and what those would have meant to a first century audience. Nice. And, he even pointed, I think, to the idea in Revelation that the fifth head of the beast was Nero and that he stabbed himself in the neck in and, and 680 AD and caused a civil war in Rome. And he pointed to some of that context around the book of Revelation. And that his preaching made me curious to start looking into um, history as a fulfillment of Revelation. Yeah. And in my own research, I came across a YouTube series by Harold Eberly called Victorious Eschatology. I've never heard and of that. It was really good. I think it was produced about 10 to 13 years ago. Um, and uh, it was really encouraging. Uh, he, he basically held the partial preterist position, mm-hmm. the idea that Jesus has, is still going to come back in our future, but most of the events of Revelation happened in the first century. And he did a really compelling sermon about that. And so after listening to him, I was convinced of his mindset, the, the partial preterist mindset. 
And one of the things he warned is he said, you don't want to believe that Jesus has already come back and it's all over. He said, that view is blasphemous. Uh, the, the full preterist view is blasphemous. So I, I had to figure out what the blasphemous view was. <laughs> so you could prove that it was blasphemy. <laughs> so I went to some full preterist YouTube videos um, uh, and I found Don K. Preston uh, and a couple others. And honestly, I, I also thought the view is blasphemous. I, I felt like they interpreted many of the symbols and prophecies in Revelation too symbolically and they robbed it of any of its literal value. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a turnoff. It was like, I, I don't think I can buy into this. And so I stayed in the partial preterist view for about eight years. Well, um, you know, it, it was about, I was around 27, 28, when my curiosity, and I'm, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I was, I assumed we were somewhere in the millennium, somewhere in the middle of the thousand years. Mm-hmm. And I figured that's the only real place where there's a long time gap in Revelation. So we must be somewhere in there. If, if most of it has happened, but not all of it, that's got to be where we're at. Right, sure. Yeah, and so... I assumed that for seven or eight years, but I still had unanswered questions. I wasn't fully convinced or sure that that's, that's where we're at. And, and I wondered what if we're after the millennium? And I started looking into that again uh, years, years later, around 28 years old. So as I was uh, researching into preterism again and into revelation being fulfilled in the past, I came across a website called Preterism 101 by David A. Green. Hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard I, of it. I have. I've seen that. Yes. He listed out 101 verses with near time indicators that the end time events were going to happen soon. Mm-hmm. And I read through that list and I saw one particular verse in Acts, Acts 24, 15, I believe. There is about to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And that word about to was in the Greek. I verified it on Bible Hub. And it said that there was not only about to be a resurrection period, but a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Mm -hmm. Now from studying Revelation, I knew that there were two resurrections. There's one at the beginning of the millennium of only the righteous. It says those beheaded for their testimony of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then there's one at the end of the millennium where it says the rest of the dead. That's right. So, So that includes the wicked. So when, when Paul says that, that there was about to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, that meant the end of the millennium, the second resurrection was about to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I sat there for a second. My mind kind of exploded. Does not compute. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and, when it doesn't work. So you, you ask yourself, well, wait a minute. You know, I came from an atheist household, so... Uh, the way my brain would work was when I would see that, I'd be like, oh, there it is. They, they're just, it's messed up. It's just messed up. But then my heart wouldn't allow myself to leave it and I would just continue to study. And that's how my beliefs would change over time. It was just, I would reject it at first, but then it would slowly creep in. Yeah. I, my experience was largely the same. Um, yeah, I definitely challenged this view quite a bit and I had a really hard time accepting it. Mm-hmm. But because remember, I considered this view blasphemous. Sure. So did I. <laughs> I did too. Well, uh, I was sitting there on the, on the couch. I had just read that verse and I was dumbfounded I, because it said there was about to be a resurrection. Well, how in the world did a resurrection happen in the first century? Mm-hmm. Right. And as I was, 
I, I believe it was from the Holy Spirit, but I don't want to speak on behalf of God. It might have been just me. Mm-hmm. A, a thought went through my head, and it went something like this. The saints went to Hades in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. or Sheol. They continued to go to Hades, or Sheol, even after the cross. Mm-hmm. And go to heaven until the resurrection. And when I heard that sentence, everything could be understood. Everything clicked. Because Sheol and Hades, we know, is an invisible place. And heaven, we know, is an invisible place. Mm-hmm. So if they're going from one invisible place to another visible place, invisible place, then the resurrection didn't actually have to be visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. But I also see, I see a physical resurrection in the book of Matthew. When they were, when on Christ's resurrection, when old saints got up and walked around, it said, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not yeah. saying that yours is incorrect. I'm just saying it's there. It says that on Christ's resurrection, that many of the saints got up and they walked around. The start of the millennium. And Christ himself had a visible resurrection. That's right. He did. All that happened on and, the same day. Yeah. So, and, and I'm not saying that my thoughts there were correct, but but I started researching that for the next three years to see if I had heard the Lord right on that, and if there was more to discover. And I came across. RevelationRevolution.org by Daniel Morais. Yep. Uh, and other preterists. And my mind was blown seeing how, how meticulously Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. It's quite remarkable how easy, how. I love the artwork similar. on his site. The artwork is tremendous. Yes. <laughs> it really is. It is. And, uh, and I really battled with this view. I, I argued with myself. I, I talked it out in my head. I listened to people who debated against full preterism. I listened to contrary views. I tried to talk myself out of it. And the more I did that, this the more scared I got that I was accepting a blasphemous belief. Sure. Oh. Yep, that's what it feels like. It's almost like yeah. you've converted to a Jehovah's Witness or converted to Mormonism or you've, you've, you've crossed this line and you know it's a line that you don't want to cross, but yet you can't argue with what you're actually reading, the fact that you're reading it. And it's like, oh, I must be misinterpreting it. But no matter what you do, it always brings you back. And like the word you said, about to be, I assume that Greek word was mellow. And yeah, yeah that word, it, it comes out all the time. It happens in Hebrews. It happens in, you know, when Jesus speaks about the about to be, it, it's, it's mellow. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, it says in a very, very little while, you know, like it gets, it's very, very <laughs> imminent words. And so, yeah, you just, I can't, you can't escape it. I, I couldn't I mean, escape it. How do you interpret that? Very, very few thousands of years? Yeah, very, very little while is a few, few. Well, in God's timing, they say, you know, and I get it. I get where they come from. But God wasn't writing to himself. He was writing to us. And we were the ones stuck in time, not him. So why would he mm-hmm. use these odd references of time? That's the kind of stuff that always stuck in my head. I could never leave it alone. Like, okay, obviously they all believe this was about to happen. So anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, there's actually a point I want to touch on that you mentioned earlier uh, that I came across in my research. As I was studying the resurrection to see if I'd heard the Lord or not, one of the things I noticed and is that the resurrection bodies, it says in the Bible that we'll have, we'll be like the angels. We'll mm-hmm. neither die because we'll be like the angels. It also says we'll have a body like Christ's glorious body. Mm-hmm. And it also says that we'll have heaven in 1 Corinthians 15. It says we'll have heavenly spiritual bodies. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have bodies like Christ, like the angels that are heavenly and spiritual. 
And when I heard that, I thought, well, if you think about angels in Christ today, they're primarily invisible. Uh, angels, by and large, are invisible to people today. Um, but on certain occasions in the Old Testament, they did become visible. Mm-hmm. Have the angels appearing to Lot uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Abraham eating with uh, the Lord and the angels by the trees. Yeah, the you angel that Jesus. came to Manoah and, uh, you know, the father and mother of Samson, that angel that came visible. Gideon. Gideon. Yeah. They're everywhere, as a matter of fact. Uh, Elisha, when he tells the servant's eyes to be open, so he yep. sees the armies of heaven. Yeah. Then you've got Balaam. <laughs> They're everywhere in the Old Testament. Yeah. And in fact, actually, Jesus on certain occasions turned invisible. After That's his right. resurrection. He, he appeared to the disciples out of thin air, it says, and suddenly he was standing in the room, or and he suddenly disappeared from their sight. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was in the same kind of resurrected body that the angels have, where he can be visible, and even Thomas touched him and put his hand on the side. So he's mm-hmm. just like the Lord and the angels ate bread with Abraham under the trees. Jesus could be touched by Thomas and felt, but he could also turn invisible, and yep. he could ascend into heaven in the same body. He was traveling faster than the speed of light, guys. <laughs> <laughs> was he infinite or in- infinity? <laughs> Not going there, Doctor. Look Brock. up in the sky. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so you're so now you've been you've you've gone to Revelation Revolution and your views are really changing and you're you're about to accept this blasphemous view, right? That's where you're at. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, I realized I had accepted it. And it was very scary. And I, I was thinking, wow, if I, I I'm definitely going to be ostracized for this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you will be. <laughs> I, I started, yes, <laughs> I started sharing this with, with some friends and family and uh, they were discouraged by it. Like, well, <laughs> you're saying Jesus already came back. What, what's left for us now? Yeah. Are where's the joy? You just our, robbed my joy. And so it begins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't sad. have a good answer. That's, I was I was discouraged. Uh, not discouraged. I was. Uh, I wasn't prepared, and I felt like the Lord encouraged me to read Isaiah. So I sat down one evening and read it through, and and one of the things occurred to me is that we are living in the kingdom now. When mm-hmm. Jesus came, it wasn't the end of the universe; it was the beginning of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And today we live in that kingdom, and where that kingdom grows peace and justice grow along with it. And we get to be part of that kingdom and help to grow it and to spread God's word and the gospel and, um, and bring people to the faith. And, and that means that not just ministry is worthwhile, but going into law, going into medicine, being a constructor, um, doing all kinds of professions is good because if we're doing our work in a kingdom oriented way, we're helping to spread God's peace and justice in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was another one for me because, you know, I come from dispensationalism and I held to that view very for a very long time. And even when I left it and started looking more towards, you know, post-millennial or, you know, amillennial views or partial preterist view, I, I really wrestled with that kingdom of heaven. Like, what is the kingdom of heaven? How... It was at hand whenever John the Baptist was there, and Jesus was saying the same, and that it would not come by observation, that it was in the midst of us, and at the time of Christ, it was Christ with us. And then, 
the Holy Spirit is sent, and then this kingdom is growing. And uh, but I kept waiting on everything to come to this final climactic end, and I thought I don't understand how this works. I remember being so confused by that, and when I started when I changed my view eschatologically, then I saw the kingdom as this ongoing, continuous, growing, never-ending kingdom. And to me, that was such a beautiful thing. And But it doesn't, that doesn't mean that dispensationalists can't believe that. Of course they can. And I could have then too. There's no problem with that. But it just like, it's like my mind changed because the things that Jesus said he was going to do, it was done. And I didn't have to do a lot of verbal gymnastics to make it work anymore. And that was a big thing for me. Did you feel that way? Mm-hmm. Like the verbal yes. gymnastics that we have to do to make the, like you can't read Matthew 24 all the way through and you start chopping it up. It's very difficult. It's hard. You know, some people will say, well, you know, verse 35, that's in the future. And verse 34, no, that's the past. And they have a dividing line. Well, we got to go to Daniel 12 too. And then you've got to go to, you know, you're bouncing around. I'm like, you know, I don't think the, I don't think the disciples were thinking that way when Jesus was saying it to him right in front of them. I think that they understood it very well that this was about to happen. And it had to have been bad. It had to, think about it. Judas Iscariot was there. Peter was there. There, there were people, that, the, the private disciples that were with him whenever he was given that all of a discourse. He's looking at them and says, the world's going to hate you and they're going to kill you. And that happened to them, mm-hmm. you know? And so uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I remember feeling that about the kingdom of heaven, that it, it, I felt the same way you did. It was just a beautiful thing. And like I said, it could have been from any eschatological position, but for me, it just meant more to me that I didn't have to chop up Jesus's words anymore. Now I saw it as, oh, he actually did what he said he was going to do. And now we have it, you know, that was beautiful yeah. to me. I don't think I've become a full preterist. I, uh, it's answered a lot of questions for me. Um, but it, 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 one of the things about it is, is people are waiting for Christ to come to, 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 to enjoy the kingdom. It's just like people waiting to retire to enjoy their life. Look, oh, yeah. the kingdom is here. Christ is in your life. He's here. So start living it because life's for the living. And don't wait till you retire. Don't wait till Jesus gets here. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Yeah. Good it, point, Ralph. The escapist mentality needs to go. If, if you're going to believe in a future coming, don't think of an escapist. You know, that I think that's the issue. It's really not a future coming. Now, some people in the Predators community would be mad at me for saying that, but I think you're right. The mentality is, if you're trying to escape the world, not being involved in it. Like, Sarita's heavily involved in this world, loves the Lord Jesus, and lives in the kingdom. That's the right mindset. Even if we don't have the same views, past or future, it's how we're living. Life is for the living. Oh, yeah. Anytime I think so, I'm doing well, I think about how much she's doing. I'm like, man, I'm, she's still, oh, kill- no, she's no, still no. killing me. Yeah, but, <laughs> no. but you got to be careful, though. Come back with that verse. Yeah. That says, be of the world, but not of the world. Be right. of the world, but not of the world. Well, that's true. No, that's true. And that's, a, that's where but it there's gives a difference the, between. But yeah, but, but you, can be gotta, in, you can be in the kingdom and not of the world. But, you know, what I hear when I go to other preterists or uh, the preterist conferences, you know, Christians just don't believe in being part of the world. Well, who do you think's been doing all most of the adoptions forever? Right. Who do you think's been feeding the poor forever? Right. I mean, and I say forever, and I don't mean that in the for eternity, but like, <laughs> I mean, it it has been traditionally the Christian, and we haven't shied away. And so, the first time I heard a preterist say, "Well, people who believe Jesus is coming in don't get involved in anything." Well, I mean, I know 
not ever, never, not every politician who calls himself a Christian is such. But, but that's always felt a little straw man to me. It is straw man. So I, I hate I that argument. It, it's, it's a, a terrible argument. It's a bad argument. argument, but I hear it every I do too. time. I don't. I don't. They don't agree get with that involved. Argument. They don't get involved. Well, who do you think's running a crisis pregnancy center? We've proven it in this yeah. in this room that that's a bad argument. It is a bad argument. It is. So I, I would just shy away from that. We are living in the kingdom of heaven, and but your people don't shy away from that. Yeah. And that, and all I was talking about was escapism. Right. There's a difference. It's whenever you're saying, okay, I'm just ready to get out of here. And then you don't engage the culture. You don't engage your family. You, you withdraw. Kind of like John Paul talked about whenever he, like, he was so beat up on himself that he got depressed for years. You know, That's what happens. You get into it. And then whenever you get with a group that believe that way and think that way, then all of a sudden there's like – there's a there's almost like a group joy and almost like a I don't know how to explain it but it's like fulfilling prophecy they're so excited about getting out of here like it's not going to be long now and so everybody's like whoo I don't have to worry about these bills or I don't have to worry about these drugs my kids are on or I don't have to worry I get it I get it like I understand why you want to escape but this isn't about that well, this that's is why about John Paul's testimony because <laughs> they're trying to escape something right? everybody's got escape everybody's trying problem. to escape the mm-hmm. escapism is a problem so sorry about that John Paul we went on a little sidetrack there but. You, you, break, you make a great point about the kingdom of heaven, and, and futurists can think that way as well. It just changed my worldview a little bit, and that was good. I needed that. I didn't have that worldview as a futurist, but it did happen whenever I became a preterist. Yeah, and if you believe or don't believe it, we're only talking about a sliver of Christianity. We're not talking about the whole thing. It doesn't all revolve on this. This is this, I believe in this particular thing right here. Right. Yeah, exactly. That shouldn't change your view of other people and their beliefs or anything, because I guarantee there are no two people in this world that believe exactly the same on every single point. Yeah, and John yeah. Paul feels the same. He said at the very beginning, I don't want to disparage the people that are with at that church. I still love them. and they, you know, Exactly. Of course. That's part of the relationship. Sorry to speak for you, John. So, so uh, take us from there. So now you've had this, you've had this experience like, oh, the kingdom of heaven is now. Yeah, well, actually, I was... Uh, when I was growing up in my church, I did wonder if I should go to college because if Jesus is coming now, uh, what's the point in getting a degree? Oh yeah, we all did. <laughs> 88 reasons for 1988 for me. That's what we were all wondering that. I mean, there was that whole idea the rapture was coming. There was a craze and it happens. And prophecy teachers still to do that today. You have to choose whether you want to listen to that crap or not, you know, but anyway. Well, I think I started growing out of that even before preterism. Um, I, I came to this view because uh, I, someone said that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. So when he says soon, it could be thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So when everyone was saying he's coming back soon, I thought that could mean thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> could be tomorrow, but it could also mean a thousand years. So I'm so curious. So now, if, if it's okay, I, I, I want to fast forward a little bit and get me to your book because you've obviously thought a lot about this and you've went through and then you sat down and you penned this book about it. On time, yeah. right? Yeah. So tell me about so, that. How did that happen? Now, remember, I started researching preterism about twenty-eight to, for about twenty-eight years old for about three years. So mm-hmm. That puts me right in my early thirties, late twenties. Um, when I I started blogging about my end times views and sharing it with my friends and family, and a lot of people were encouraged by it and challenged by it, and actually, my family was surprisingly open to it. Um, they didn't discredit me or think I was a heretic or anything like that. They actually were supportive. They don't agree with me. Uh, most of them don't. Uh, some of them might, but but they didn't treat me bad or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I was blogging for a while, and and I realized that this was having a really positive impact on my life. 
I found myself feeling more peaceful. I wasn't fearing the great tribulation in my future. I was feeling more joyful. We, I felt like I had a purpose. We, we get to make this world a better place. Mm-hmm. We're not just here to waste our lives and go to heaven. We actually can make change here that will last for our kids and kids' kids. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like it gave me confidence in, in the message of the gospel. Because one of the things that people would say is, oh, God, he says he's soon, but he's always late. You can't always take him at his word. <laughs> you know? yeah. They wouldn't say that. That was the idea. Like, God is God is uh, uh, untrustworthy in a sense. Mm-hmm. That's not what they said, but that's what it implied. And I didn't realize that that was having, it was undermining my faith in a way I didn't realize. And when I came to the full preterist view, and I saw that, wait a second, he promised to come soon, and he actually did come soon. That was, it restored my faith in the gospel and in Christianity. Mm-hmm. It made it stronger and more robust. So I had a faith that was more robust. I was feeling more peaceful. I had a purpose here. Um, and and I just saw, I, I, I the scriptures are finally making sense. And I began thinking, you know, and anyone who wants to understand the Bible honestly and wants to uh, I mean, this is a big subject in the Bible. This is more than a third. It of is. What the Bible Eschatology is over, I think it's 33%, 34% of the Bible. There's there's quite a bit of, about it in it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, how do you ignore the subject? So, well, that's, that's, your, that's your next book. Christ, uh, you know, it came on time. Now what? well actually that's that's included in my on time book in the final chapter i have a chapter called what what now yeah you're supposed to save the cliffhanger so you could do a second book yeah that's right yeah 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 you need a good marketing person (laughs) hi sarita edgerton she's right here in south carolina yeah so so the second thing the two things that motivated me to write the book one i realized that the reason we have the paul in a way is still preaching today when he wrote the Bible, he's in heaven now, but we're still reading the Bible and we're being influenced. And I thought, if this world's going to stick around, I want to leave a message that's going to encourage people. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to have a book that I can continue to preach here when I'm later in heaven. Yeah. Um, that was one. But the other part of it was I saw the positive impact this message had in my life. And I thought this has got to impact other people positively too. Um, so I should share it. Yeah. That's fantastic. So let's talk about where to find that book, guys. Amazon. Oh, yeah. It's on Amazon. And on it's also website. On, on his website. Um, why don't you talk about your website, John? How, how, do they, how do they find it? Yep. I blog at revelationsandgrace.netlify.app. Sorry, it's a long name, but... <laughs> yeah. But you can type in Revelations and Grace and Google, and it, it'll probably be one of the top results there. Um, but uh, I also sell the book on Barnes & Noble on Apple Books and Google Books. And it's available as an audiobook on Google Books. Oh, really? You got and, an audiobook? And Kindle. Uh-huh. It's on Kindle as well, Amazon? Yeah, mm-hmm. Kindle. Kindle on Amazon, yep. Very and, good. Uh, and that's on time and, uh, yeah. Well, what I would like to do is buy every one of the boroughs their own copy and have you sign it. So how do I go about doing that? Do I just go on Amazon and have it shipped to you? <laughs> yeah, and then you want me to mail it to you guys afterwards? Yeah, let's do that. I did that with uh, Brian Godow, and it worked out pretty well. So we'll do that and get the book. And then uh, 
after we read it that I want to bring you back because I want to talk to you about the book in general instead of just your testimony. Would that be okay? That'd be fantastic. I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, thanks for putting up with our technical difficulties in the beginning. And I'm and uh, but it means a lot to me that you were willing to be on the show. And guys, go out and check, uh, look up John Powell Miles and. Um, John, it says here uh, in your little bio, it says uh, you were born and raised in Middle Tennessee, married to his lovely wife, Gabby Miles, who is from Venezuela, and they live with their white Siberian Husky, Dakota. That's right. (laughs) You're a web designer, developer, like to blog, study, converse with friends and family, go on walks, play piano. Oh, you play piano. I do. That's awesome. So do I. Okay, well, we're I'm, still building the, the the band. We're building the band. Yeah, we're all going to get together. We should do like a Zoom like a Zoom band for fun, right? And he likes to eat tasty meals. So do I. More than five a day. The mo- no, that's what I do. Not John here. Doesn't look like it. Looks like you've lost some weight. I I have. I found it. It's on the backside. So the most important <laughs> thing in John Paul's life is his faith and relationship with Jesus, and his hope is to honor the Lord with his research. And I think you've done that in your book. I'm super excited to get it. So go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or Apple Books and look up John Paul Miles' book. Um, it's called On Time, Reexamining the End Times and Jesus' Return. And our good friend, Karen Rogers, uh, helped edit that book. And, and would you say she co-authored some, or what would you say? Yeah, you know, she actually helped me with the content a little bit. Karen, uh, we love Karen here. We love Karen. uh, She's amazing. And she did an incredible job editing my book and taught me so much about writing. Yes, Um, she she does a lot of great edits um, for a lot of us here, actually. She did one for Rick. It was really good. Yep. You also have another book, Trusting in Grace. It's a a paperback, 100-page paperback. Uh, it's also on Barnes and Noble. Is it at the other places as well? Amazon and Apple Books. Yeah, I know it's just on Amazon right now. Oh, okay. So I see it on Barnes and Noble. Oh, okay. It says available um, online. Not yeah. It says available online. I'm assuming it's not in stock at stores, but I don't know. Interesting. Trusting in I Grace. Forgot. Yeah, trusting in Grace covers a lot of the grace journey I had in my 19 to 20 year old age range. Oh, that's awesome. Where, yeah, that's those are the two messages that I feel are core to my life and important for people to hear. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. It means a lot. And we are, I want to, once we get the book, I'll, I'll do that uh, this next week. We'll get those books on order, get them here. We'll read and bring you back. Thank you so much. Well, I love getting to be on here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. yeah thanks absolutely. for coming. Rick Carter, big yeah. daddy. Thanks for being here. Ralph, Represent. Andy, Sarita, Cherry. I was waiting for that. (laughs) Anyway, and uh, we will talk to you guys again next time on the Burroughs of Berea. Peace Peace out. out. Bye, y'all. Hey, guys, this is Rick from the Burroughs of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Actually, you're pretty quiet. It's kind of hard to hear you. Can you turn up your volume on your end or are you a yeah, is, is your sound distorted or anything or are you kind of doing okay? The sound isn't distorted, and my volume's up all the way. But you guys, sound do you want it to be? Mu- do you want it to be louder?
Yeah, that can you loud I him have up? Control over. Yeah, test, Andy has control test of that. One, two, three. Just so long Louder as. Be, yeah. Okay, I'll do a test, test, test. You tell me when it sounds good for you. Uh, that, yeah, that's how, awesome. Is that too loud or is that okay? Say say something again. Go ahead, Rick. Test, test. How are you doing? Um, really good. Maybe if anything, slightly. No, I think that's. I think that's great. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Let me just. One, All right, one, so one sorry. last thing. Yes, thank you for your patience, yes. sir. Thank you. We do this every time. Every time. And it's my computer. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days I'll grow up and buy a Mac. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which means I'd be like a toddler because everything else is infantile. <laughs> well, you just have to learn a whole new system at that point, and that's kind of a bigger bump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you have to buy everything that associates with Apple. Right. Once you go to Mac, Generally can't go backwards. It's just so much easier. It's just everything is just easier. Yeah. And my really husband is. can't use the iPhones and stuff. Their software that they use for um, Survey. land surveying is yeah. not compatible with, with iPhone. That makes right. sense. Yeah. Sure. All right. So, and something that I definitely want to remember, everybody remind me of this. I want to be able to tell people how to get to his book on time. The book is called On Time, not oh, okay. On Time. The book is called <laughs> On like, Time. Like, what's the rush? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting soon to work. I do have to say, though, that you have the same first and middle name as my son in heaven. Oh. John Paul. Ah. Really? Yep. And That's so unique. My two favorite apostles. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Says a lot about mine, Judas Bartholomew. <laughs> anyway. Hey, Andy, are we rolling? Yeah, we're rolling. All right. 